Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. With us today is Andrea Meyer, MD, PhD, an internal medicine specialist, geriatrician, and researcher whose work focuses on age-related disease, cellular senescence, and the translation of longevity science into clinical practice. Among her academic appointments are professorships at the Free University Amsterdam in the Netherlands, University of Melbourne in Australia, and the National University of Singapore, where she also serves as the co-director of the Center for Healthy Longevity. She is also the president of the Australia and New Zealand Society for Sarcopenia and Frailty Research, and she has more frequent flyer miles than I do. Dr. Meyer, thank you for being here. Thank you. I think that's not a good sign to have more frequent flyer miles than you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just calling it like it is. All right, well, let's get started. So, you know, we spent a lot of time in this podcast on telling the story of longevity biotech, which is fundamental research in the biology of aging, the founding of companies, the funding entities that bring resources into the field, and of course, clinical trials of new drugs. But the ultimate goal of longevity biotech is longevity medicine, clinical treatments that extend the health span and lifespan. So I want to start with this question. What does the term longevity medicine mean to you? And how is it distinct from the established medical specialty of geriatrics? We recently defined longevity medicine. Now it's called healthy longevity medicine, which is optimizing the health span by antagonizing the aging process during the life course. So you have lots of keywords, of course, in that definition. So first and foremost is it about health span. It's not per se about lifespan. And it's about optimizing the state of health of an individual before a disease occurs, because that's health span. And it is really tackling fundamental aging processes we describe in geroscience, where we are trying to antagonize the aging processes to be healthier for longer. And it's across the lifespan, which means it is applicable for every individual at every age. And if you compare longevity medicine with, for example, internal medicine or more conventional medicine specialists, then it's very different because I am treating as internal medicine specialist individuals when they're already sick, they are coming to me with symptoms of diabetes or high blood pressure or cancer we try to avoid these diseases and to prolong the healthy lifespan. I want to drill a little deeper into something that you just said. So we talked to a lot of PhDs and MBAs on this show, but how does your background as an MD, a medical doctor, inform how you think about longevity medicine? I would first give you an impression as a hospital manager. I manage lots of hospital departments in my life, in my past career, and I realized while managing the hospital and there was also the outpatient clinics, I was managing something which I could prevent already. And I would like to see different clients because we have a sick care and not a healthcare system at this moment in time. So from a management aspect, I saw lots of opportunities to change the conventional way we are practicing. 
from an ND perspective, I saw, as as a manager, individuals who were already sick. So, and while understanding the disease processes, it's not very difficult to also to understand the process of aging, because if we are looking at ourselves in the mirror every year again and over and over, and look at pictures of ourselves like 20 years ago, we already see the aging process. The same we see during the disease process in conventional medicine. So it's just a translation of knowledge we have as an MD or I have as an MD and from a management perspective to now target individuals much earlier in life to prevent that age-related disease and to call, if you like, aging a disease. I see. So this is the critical difference, as far as I understand it, in most medical specialties, indeed, the, the vast majority or even all current medical specialties, physicians are seeing patients who have already fallen ill. Whereas in longevity medicine, the specialist is basically saying, you're a person in the world, you're in the same situation that all of us are, you're getting older, you run the risk of getting sick, let's manage you in such a way that you get sick as late as possible, and hopefully not at all. Am I getting that right? What we would like to achieve is to optimize that function at that moment in time for that individual. And optimizing function means the optimizing the cognitive function, but also the physical function to prevent that age-related disease. Because we know that from the 20th to the 30th birthday, our function is declining from all our organ systems. So what can we do to optimize that? that the rate of aging is not only slower, but also less steep. And that's important because at a certain time, you're at the edge that we call a function a disease. I will give you an example. Take the blood pressure. The blood pressure is going to rise with chronological age because of atherosclerosis. At a certain point, we call that hypertension. If we try to slow down the aging process and therewith try to slow down the increase in blood pressure, therewith optimizing cardiovascular health, we will prolong that life without being a patient taking drugs for high blood pressure. And we can do that for all other organ systems. So it's really about what is your function at this moment in time? Can we optimize this? Do you want it to be optimized? There was the return if you want to be optimal will be that the chance of an age-related disease is much, much uh, lower if it occurs at any point in time. Or So we are prolonging the, the health span. One of the main aims of your work is to bring longevity medicine into clinical practice. And to, to that end, you're involved in a couple of ambitious efforts that have hit the news recently. First one I want to talk about is you're the founder of a recently launched organization called the Healthy Longevity Medicine Society. And I'm just going to quote from the website. The mission is to build a clinically credible framework and platform for longevity medicine that promotes the highest standards of interdisciplinary collaboration in the field. So that's a noble goal. How do you plan about doing that? We have three achievable goals. So the first one is education educating laymen, educating you and me, uh, healthcare professionals, people who are in the industry, but also people who would like to be in the industry. And most importantly, also educating politicians, because we cannot change on our own the, the system. We need to change the way we are working, how it's financed, uh, etc. Next, in the educational part, it's very important to have a speciality which is recognized because I, at the moment, I do longevity medicine work by being an internal medicine specialist. 
And I trained a little bit myself by reading articles, etc. So that has to change. We need a credible foundation for the future generation of doctors who can be credible in performing their work. So we need a recognized speciality of longevity medicine physicians within, for example, internal medicine. The second one is very important. We need credibility. And credibility in medicine will be achieved by having guidelines and to follow guidelines and to follow the best possible evidence base we have out of our research. So we will write the guidelines which are fundamental to build a new speciality. And we will judge the level of evidence we have, which can then translate into clinical practice. Thirdly, which is very dear to my heart, we have to accelerate what we are doing in research. Research is very slow uh, most of the times. However, we have so much already in hands and so much already went into clinical practice without that evidence and that judgment that we need much bigger trials to actually see if certain interventions work, if certain biomarkers to measure the biological age of somebody, if that is accurate enough to bring it into clinical practice. And I think also to bring it as a product to the community, because the consumer doesn't know what is good and what is not good. So we need a network of researchers, of clinician scientists to accelerate our knowledge and most importantly, is the acceleration of uh, intervention trials, especially in the phase three and four, where supplements, for example, or repurposed drugs are being tested on very broad scale, that we know what kind of effect size we have and if it's safe enough to give to a broader community. I'm fascinated by this idea of guidelines. And you, you gave us some idea of what you were talking about by setting up definitions and criteria for what kind of diagnostic tests will be used, and eventually through trials, what kind of drug-like products and drugs will be used in the context of longevity medicine. What other kinds of guidelines are you hoping to establish for this new specialty? Most importantly, the first guideline will be which kind of diagnostics should we use. Think about clocks. Nowadays, everybody is uh, talking about clocks. Clocks is our a sort of repurposing of data we already have, where we look at a certain biomarker, for example, epigenetic uh, data, and we are estimating how that individual is functioning compared to a peer of the same chronological age. And then we are saying, okay, you are biologically younger or older. We have to establish which kind of clock is working best, not only predicting the chronological age, because I think that's not so interesting. Just look at your passport. <laughs> but most importantly, is that clock, is that predictive for future outcome? Does it tell us something about your risk of age-related diseases? And is it telling us something about your risk of mortality? And we have to judge these clocks, which are best to predict cardiovascular disease, diabetes, stroke, dementia, etc. I don't think that our field will accelerate if we have clocks which are predictive for smoking, because just look at the yellow fingers and you will recognize if somebody is smoking. So I think we need that credibility and we have to write it down what kind of level of evidence there is for certain clocks. Once we establish that, we are going to start looking at the credibility of supplements. What is the effect, for example, taking alpha ketoglutarate or NMN or spermidine or visiting lots of supplements which are already available on the internet, lots of people take. 
and nobody really knows or has really described what the effect is of these supplements over the life course and for whom. And I think consumers should need to know uh, what the return of investment is of taking these kind of supplements. On the other hand side, physicians should know what the possible return of investment is if these kind of supplements are prescribed to healthy individuals. I think that the question of the efficacy of supplements is one that the field really needs to engage with and get some convincing answers to. There are so many molecules out there that are you know, natural products. They're available as supplements. There's some body of preclinical evidence in mice or in human cells that there's some positive biological effect. But the long-term effects in real human beings hasn't been sorted out. The interactions with drugs and other drug-like products that the individual might be taking hasn't been worked out. And even if the medicine is effective, the dosing hasn't been sorted out in human beings. And all these things have to be answered in order to answer the question, are these things worth, as you put it, the investment? Absolutely. So we fixed in the last 20 year mice. So <laughs> we know that mice live longer and healthier while taking certain supplements. And now we just have to translate that and do high quality studies long enough to give us the answers for our human species. And as you said, it's not only that we need to know how many milligram or grams of a certain supplement somebody should take, but also what the frequency is and what the duration is. And it might be that just taking drugs or supplements forever doesn't give the best result. So and lots of people already taking a couple of supplements together. And I think that might also be dangerous. Uh, we learned in geriatrics that we call that polypharmacy and without knowing what the real effect is. So another very important thing, what we should learn while implementing diagnostics, implementing clocks into our research, into hopefully clinical practice, is that we individualize the intervention to the need of that individual on biological, physical, mental, etc. level at a certain time. Now we are applying supplements to a broad range of individuals independent of their biological phenotype. See, for example, lots of trials being testing NMN or, or alpha-ketoglutarate without looking if that person will actually benefit possibly from that supplement. So while, while now gathering all the data out of RCTs, randomized controlled trials, the first step to do post hoc analysis who was a responder, who was a medium responder, who was a non-responder to certain supplements. And that means that we really have to bring all the data together to have in a post hoc analysis, the bad guess, which individuals will have benefit from which supplement in the end, on a biological level, and hopefully in the end, also on clinical level, because it has to be meaningful in the end, clinically. That's such an excellent point about polypharmacy, because I think it, some people think, you know, if it's a supplement and it's sold in a store, it can't possibly hurt you, right? But the, the counter argument to that is if it has a biological activity, it can have a side effect and it can have an interaction with another molecule that you're putting into your body. And so these things absolutely have to be thought of in the context of real people in the world taking multiple medicines, taking multiple supplements, looking at the interactions, and then looking at who's actually responding to them. And all these things that sound like are going to converge on a kind of 
personalized longevity medicine paradigm. Am I hearing you right? In the end, there should be a personalized longevity medicine approach. It can be quite dangerous taking lots of supplements. I just wanted to make the point that as an internal medicine specialist, very often in my career, I saw individuals even on the IC unit who came there because of taking lots of over-the-counter drugs, over-the-counter vitamins, etc. So everything can be, if it works, it always has a side effect and we just have to take that into account. So the question now, of course, is how do we reach the stage that we can say longevity medicine is personalized? I have an approach with my group, and that's the following. We are testing in a parallel way lots of supplements at the moment in 40 to 60-year-old healthy individuals who have the capacity to optimize and to increase their health span because they don't have the diseases yet. And while testing lots of supplements in parallel with an adequate control, we can also compare the effect sizes of these supplements. Take, for example, we have a control arm with placebo. Of course, individuals do not know. Then we have a, an arm with a supplement one, supplement two, or supplement three, etc. And while doing it in parallel, we then can actually judge which one has the highest effect size in whom, in what kind of individuals. The next step is then combining based on the profile of how they work on molecular level to combine these supplements or these repurposed drugs and then see, okay, how much of the effect size of the effect clinically do they add while giving them together? And that's actually a little bit copy-pasted, repurposed what we learned out of other specialities. For example, if I have a patient with hypertension, I would give them normally two or three drugs because we know that they work synergistically and have a higher effect to lower the blood pressure and not just increasing the dosage and the frequency of that certain drug. So these kind of rules we are going to apply to the field of longevity medicine, to geroscience, to test which supplements which repurposed drugs is going to be most effective in whom and when. And all of that collectively is going to give what you call the credible framework that's going to help expand the adoption of the longevity medicine paradigm around the world. Absolutely. If I compare longevity medicine to other specialities, take oncology, I think we are 50 years behind. But what we can learn, learning from frameworks, others, and we already applied in modern medicine, apply these to longevity medicine with all the methodologies we already know and we have in our hands, that we have a much better and, and steeper increase of knowledge that we can directly transfer into clinical practice to actually improve the health span of healthy individuals, but who are aging. Before we move on to talk about your personal clinical practice, I wanted to ask a follow-up question about the educational mission that you described as one of the um, goals of the Healthy Longevity Medicine Society. If I understand correctly, one of the important ideas is that, that there are principles of longevity medicine that could be applied today, but most physicians simply aren't aware of them. So they, they can't apply them in their own practice, and they don't even necessarily know that they could make a referral to somebody else who does know about these principles. Is that something you've encountered? 
We always say that diagnostics and interventions are most important in longevity medicine, but we don't have to wait until we have the most accurate clocks to measure or we have the most effective interventions in terms of supplements or repurposed drugs because we already have diagnostics and intervention in hand. So while, for example, measuring organ functions, every GP, general practitioner can measure like the blood pressure, like the lung function, like the functionality, this is already indicative for the biological age of a person. By measuring that in the Dunedin study, and New Zealand nicely showed that, that all these functions, every GP can measure, they're already declining from the 20th birthday onwards. So we have the diagnostics in hand. We have a very powerful intervention in hand, and that is lifestyle changes. While giving not only more steps and prescribe more steps, but for example, resistance exercise training and aerobic training to improve muscle function, but also cardiovascular fitness and individualize that, that's already very powerful Next to that, the entire science around food, food intake, when to eat what, is exploding at this moment in time. We know that the gain of lifespan could already be roughly 8 to 14 years if we would change as a society from a Western diet to an optimal diet, which is already defined and has been published next to what we eat. Also, the timing of food intake is very important. One of the examples is intermittent fasting, for example, where there is increasing knowledge also in even patient populations that diseases are much better under control, patients and individuals lose weight, etc. And there are so many more. We could write a book uh, uh, of it, like sleep quality control, not only the quantity and psychological aspects being resistant to stressors, etc. mentally are so important for different organ systems. So we have already interventions in place. We have diagnostics in place. And that's the reason why I, as an internal medicine specialist, I am opening the first longevity clinic in a publicly funded hospital because I think it's time and I think it's unethical to not applying this knowledge to the population and just waiting until the disease occurs. The interventions you described just previously are not just standards that you're describing that other physicians should follow. You're going to be practicing longevity medicine yourself. And and the clinic that you're opening at Alexandra Hospital in Singapore is, as you say, the first publicly funded outpatient clinic in longevity medicine. First of all, do you have an official opening date for the clinic? We are opening in the beginning of uh, next year, 2023, so January to March. What services will you provide? And and maybe we can start with who the patient base is and how somebody would come to you as a patient. Could they walk in off the street and say, help me with my aging? Yeah. So the first uh, thing we have to discuss, is it a patient or not? So normally as a physician, I think about a patient when the patient is already diseased. So we already have an ICD-11 code, which is the International Classification of Diseases, where aging or age-related symptoms are being recognized. So I could call individuals who are healthy following the conventional healthcare system, I could call them patients. So we decided actually to not call them patients, but to call them clients or individuals coming to the outpatient clinic. What we are going to do there is 
applying the diagnostics, we are applying a epigenetic clock based on the methylation state of blood cells next to measuring their body composition, their blood pressure, so all the lung functions we are going to assess. And based on that assessment, and of course, after measuring their lifestyle with digital devices to measure sleep, but also tracking their glucose levels and tracking their physical activity and sedentary behavior, we are giving advice based on recipes we made. We also said that we will not uh, give just interventions, but we will give them recipes. Recipes, two words, a healthier lifestyle. And in the recipes, there is, for example, intermittent fasting included, but also very personalized approaches to not only move more, but to individualize it based on much more resistance exercise training, cardiac training, and that all dependent of what the phenotypic characterization of that person on biological, physical, and lifestyle gave. And of course, very important, otherwise it would not be good medicine. We are testing if we see improvement. So the diagnostics we do at baseline will be repeated afterwards, after four to six months. I see. So there's personal diagnostics. You're assessing the person's biological age, for lack of a better word. You're measuring functional capabilities. And then you're saying this person needs more of this, less of this, more activity, less eating, but like in a particular way, in a specific way. And you're giving them essentially a prescription or a recipe or a protocol to follow. And then you're following up on them to make sure that the recommended course of treatment is actually yielding some kind of an improvement. And compliance is the key. We know that lifestyle changes are very difficult for individuals can just look at myself. So what we also apply based on research we also did, or my group did in, in Europe, we give uh, coaches that actually the adherence will be a little bit better and that there are adequate nudges towards the more healthier lifestyle. Most importantly is that we have to give individuals a choice, what they would like to achieve. Because if we want as healthcare professionals too much, People will not stick to our recipes. Nothing will happen. So it has to be a, a shared decision-making on what to do and what to leave out. Let me play the skeptic for a second and say, so essentially, eat right and get more exercise. Could you give me an example of a way in which that would be individualized or personalized rather than just this general advice that I feel like we've been hearing for a while from a lot of different sources? How is this a specific treatment for a particular patient? So you can already see based on, for example, the genetic makeup or the epigenetic makeup, you can see what people lack in terms of their diet. You haven't heard from me that I would, in the first instance, also next to lifestyle changes, would give supplements. So that's still in the debate. Because I, as a hardcore researcher, I first want to see meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials, testing supplements to see what their clinical effectiveness is before I prescribe these kind of supplements in my publicly funded longevity clinic. So that's the reason why you don't hear that. We already know from studies and meta-analysis what kind of diet helps and where certain ingredients are present, for example, in strawberries, physitin, etc. At the moment, we are writing systematic reviews 
where we define the most healthiest food you could take to prolong your life uh, in a healthy way. And strawberries with physetin is just one of the examples. And based on the intake, you can optimize the intake because that's work what dietitians already normally do. But what is lacking in, in general practice at this moment in time, we either see as dietitians, they see individuals who are already frail, who have a very low protein intake, etc. That's not hardcore science. That's not innovation. Or we see individuals working with top sporters, for example, and optimizing their diet. And what we do is bringing that knowledge together with geroscience to the general layman to optimize their health, because that's not what's integrated at this moment in time in clinical practice. I had been really interested to know about where supplements and other kinds of drugs fit in. It sounds like you're saying that the the jury's still out, the data aren't in, and that right now we're not ready to incorporate supplements and repurposed drugs into a coherent program of longevity medicine. I don't say that. There are different approaches. We are now talking about a longevity clinic being integrated in a publicly funded system. I think, and that's dear to my heart, that everything we are we are integrated in a publicly funded, taxpayer-funded system that this has to be evidence-based. We already have a very powerful intervention in hand, and that's lifestyle, and we should apply that. And I think there is absolute a return of investment, not only for the taxpayer, but for the society as a whole to implement that. So that's the first step. There are lots of wellness clinics already around the world who prescribe because of people's choices and ability to pay, to prescribe supplements, et cetera, and to optimize, who are trying to optimize individuals in a way which is not yet evidence-based. I have absolutely not um, something against that, but I don't think that we should take the first step in a publicly funded system to do that because it's not evidence-based. Fair enough and very well said. A slightly related question. So lots of the guests on this show are involved in companies that are developing new medications that target mechanisms of aging. And either several of those medications will be coming out in the next five to 10 years, or there are going to be a lot of unhappy venture capitalists in the world. So as somebody who's working for a company that's that's working toward that end, I wanted to ask whether you see an opportunity down the road to apply these kinds of novel medications in your clinic. Absolutely. So my day-to-day job is running a big research group who is actually involved in lots of randomized controlled trials. And I would um, like to invite everybody who wants to perform high-quality randomized controlled trials to talk to each other, happy to help. What we need to do in the next coming three to five years, filling the big bubble saying, yes, we can improve the health span of humans with supplements and with repurposed drugs and with new drugs. We just have to prove that there is something in this big, big, big bubble. And we do that at the National University of Singapore, my group at the Center for Health Longevity, and doing lots of these randomized controlled trials. Because in the end, if you invest in something, it can be money, it can be a randomized controlled trial, you want to know what the outcome is. You want to see your revenue at least in the financial business. So I, as a researcher, want to see 
what the results are by giving these drugs. How do we get there? We have to have much better and more and bigger randomized controlled trials to see what the effect is to filling that bubble, which can then eventually, once it's proven, be implemented in all the longevity clinics around the world, independent of if it's publicly or privately funded. The only thing is that individuals in privately funded longevity clinics, they invest in themselves, they take the risk that it doesn't work, and it's their money they invest. In a publicly funding business, I would say, let's first see what the chance is that it's going to work. And that's the difference between these two different systems. But absolutely, I would say always belief belongs to the church, but I absolutely believe that in the next coming three to five years, we are going to fill the bubble if we are all working together and we're taking some risk, but we also do trials with supplements we already know and we just show that they are working. And we shouldn't be fearful because even resveratrol has to be tested in very good randomized control trials and either uh, being released from the market on Amazon or being even more added to the market based on the results. So you're focusing on things that are evidence-based. And one of the kind of themes that I hear running through what you're saying is you really want longevity medicine to be something that is democratized, something that's not just available to wealthy people who have the money to spend on expensive treatments or expensive diagnostics, but something that public funders and insurers and national healthcare systems will feel comfortable supporting because the price is right and because the return on investment is high. And it's ultimately something that will be available to everyone. And as everybody nearly has a smartphone at this moment in time, I want longevity medicine to be available and to be attractive for everybody because in the end, we have an aging society and the aging society means there are lots of costs, etc. So you can call it democratizing a longevity medicine. That's absolutely right. There is nothing against wells, absolutely, but we should deliver care to everybody who needs our help. And I would say helping means, in my view, to prevent age-related diseases and therewith reduce the costs of the entire society. As we come to the close of our conversation, I want to ask you, what's your long-term vision for longevity medicine? Do you see the effort at Alexandra Hospital as a model for other clinics around the world? It's just the first longevity clinic, uh, the publicly funded longevity clinic. So my uh, KPI is in the next coming three years to have lots of randomized controlled trials and to show which supplements, which repurposed drugs and which new drugs are working while having the pipeline in our center from the preclinical research to the clinical research and back to the preclinical to understand the mechanisms even better and to personalize in the end the interventions So that's most important. Secondly, within the next coming five years, I want a longevity medicine physician to be recognized by medical councils because then we can also train physicians to do their job because that's very important. Training is the most important part of life. You wouldn't, I think, rely on a surgeon who was never trained as a surgeon. So don't rely on longevity medicine specialists not being trained as a longevity medicine specialist. On the longer run, hopefully in 10 years' time, we see the shift in society that we can actually prevent age-related diseases. 
and we see a lowering of the prevalence of these diseases. I think then, then I'm very happy and I will do something else with my life. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully a very long life it will be. Last question. I just want to open the floor and basically give you the chance to say anything you want. I'm going to prompt you with this. If you could say one thing about longevity medicine to every clinician in the world, what would it be? Recognize your own aging trajectory. Look at the photographs being taken 20 years ago, and you will understand what aging means. And the outer side is the inner side. So imagine how your heart is looking at this moment in time. Once you recognize that, you will be trained or you will be interested in longevity medicine courses. And uh, hopefully your work, what you do at the moment, will be partly redundant in 10 years time. Well, I certainly hope that that ends up being the case. And I hope that people hear your message. Dr. Meyer, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for listening. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at bioagepodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioH Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.